Well, I said earlier I was going to do a, a Thanksgiving-related message. The reason for that, I wasn't planning on that. Um, and I don't usually do that. If, if you've been around here long enough, you know that when it comes to Thanksgiving and Christmas, we don't usually break off and do some Christmas-related series. We just kind of keep going through uh, whatever it is that we've been studying. Um, I, I don't know why. Not because I have a preference one or the other. It's just kind of what we normally do. Um, so my wife asked me this week, are we going to do some kind of like Thanksgiving sermon and service? And I said, no, I wasn't planning on it. And she said, oh. <laughs> so I'm going to do that. I changed my mind. I'm going to thank Christine for that, even though she's in the nursery today. Um, Thanksgiving, though, yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's, it's that time of year where we, we are all sort of encouraged to just stop and to consider all that we have been given, all that God has done for us. Uh, and it's a remarkable thing for Christians to, we should, we should be like that every day, right? Uh, and I know God is good enough to remind us regularly to do that, but it's, it's good. It's, it's cool to have an opportunity once a year as a country uh, and as the church to just concentrate on that and to to really consider, again, all that God has done. Um, so I, as I was thinking about, okay, my wife's encouraging me to think about Thanksgiving and considering passages. And the, the, the one, there, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible about Thanksgiving, of giving thanks to God. There's lots of passages we could have looked at. Um, but the one that, that I think resonates most with me is Colossians 1. Because as, as, as I was thinking about and, and, and even sharing a little bit earlier in the service, in my prayer, um, being thankful for things is good, but, but the most important thing for us to remember is that, that we're thankful to someone, right? Uh, we're not just sort of thankful to the universe. Uh, we're not thankful to fate and random chance and just, oh, thank, thankfully I got that, or thankfully I... We're thankful to a giver, a father, uh, and the and the thing that we're to be most thankful for is the most important thing he's ever done and given for us, and that's his son. And Colossians one is all about his son and that gift. Um, so that's what came to my mind this week. I want to point you there, Colossians chapter one. Um, I want to read verses three to nine as it kind of sets up this idea of thanksgiving. And we're going to spend most of our time actually in the, the latter half of that chapter. But Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes to the church in Colossae, and he's got thanksgiving on his mind. He says, we thank, always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Think about that for just a minute. Paul's thankful as he considers the church there as they consider the love of God and the hope that they have. Uh, hope breeds thanksgiving in them, which gives him means or cause for thanksgiving because of the hope in Christ. It's all centered around Christ, but there's something about that hope. Of this you heard before, the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed 
In the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. As it's also doing among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And, and so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's a lot packed into those verses there, but do but you see where he's getting at here? Thanks be to God for this amazing Christ and the gift of life that we have in him. We were in the domain of darkness, and because of him, we've been transferred into the kingdom of Jesus. It's an amazing uh, just a recounting of our salvation. And it's what causes him to say, we have so much to be thankful for in Christ. All right, so that was what, that's what kind of uh, uh, got my mind thinking originally as I was considering Thanksgiving. Just that, that thanks that Paul gives here in the beginning of Colossians chapter 1. Uh, but, but the next eight verses are, uh, they're, I think, what, what is the result of his thanksgiving. As he's, as he's thanking God for this salvation, for the way that that salvation is affecting the church, uh, we read the, the next eight verses of chapter 1, and most scholars think that it's actually a poem uh, or a hymn, which is kind of funny because the Apostle Paul is not the first guy that you normally think of as being a poet. Or a songwriter, right? He's kind of a doctrine guy, right? The Psalms, those are, those are poetry. Those are songs. Paul, he's, he's, he's serious and doctrinal. But, but this is probably Paul's way of singing as he goes over these next few verses here. Uh, and why? Why is, why is poetry, uh, why does it exist? And, and why would Paul break into song here? Well, because poetry is one way of telling the truth that in some ways, is superior to others. Uh, Aristotle uh, has this uh, distinction, this famous distinction between history and poetry, and he says, you know, history is is what happened, right? But be, when you tell history just sort of as what happened, it's it's subject to all the constraints and imperfections of actual life. It's just sort of what happened, right? But but he says poetry uses words in their fuller potential and creates representations that are more complete and meaningful than nature can give us in the raw. That's why poetry exists. It's a, it's a beautiful way of communicating something that goes above and beyond just sort of the raw telling of the facts. Uh, there's a poet named C. John Holcomb who said, there's a deep and abiding joy that poetry, and often poetry alone, can bring. So with that said, you know, here's Paul becoming a poet. And, and just about every one of the, the commentaries that, that I own counts this text, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, as, as 
one of, if not the most, uh, well, let me put it this way, this, the greatest Christical, Christical, can't speak this morning, Christological, thank you, passages. It's about Jesus, right? And maybe there's no other passage about Jesus that's quite as exalted as this one. So, Poetry seems like a good way to communicate all of this. Let's read it together. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. The firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Can I just walk you back through that just, just briefly again? You know, if you've again, been around here long enough, you might have noticed we like to preach Christ here at Edgewater. Uh, that's, that's what I long to do every Sunday when I stand up before you and open up the Word of God, just to preach Christ. We want to make much of Jesus and His Gospel and and man, if, if, if that's your thing, there's not a better chunk of, of text than this one, right? In Him, verse 14, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You Christians, because of Christ, if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. Your standing before God is, is, is secure and you stand before Him as, as clean and as righteous as Jesus, because of Jesus' righteousness and what He has done, you have no guilt. That's amazing. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, verse 15. He's the one who reveals God to us. When we look at Him, we see the fullness of God. And because we are created in the image of God, if Jesus is the perfect image bearer, Jesus also reveals to us humanity in the way that God intended it. We look at Jesus, we see God as He is, and we see us as we should be. Right? He's the firstborn of all creation, it says. That doesn't mean that Jesus is created. It's a positional thing. It means He's first. He's above it all. And we know that because it says right after that that by Him all things were created. Right? He is the Creator. All things in heaven and earth, everything that's visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities. Verse 16 is full of some things that we will come back to, but it's important to note that it was all created by Him, through Him, and for Him. He is before all things, verse 17 says, which again means He is pre-existent. He's eternal. Fully God. And I love the end of verse 17. In Him all things hold together. It means He's the sustainer. That's, a, that's an incredible thought too. Think about this. Without Jesus, every molecule in the universe scatters. 
He spoke it into being, and by his very existence, it holds together. Apart from him, there's nothing. There's chaos. And then in verse 18, we, we sort of see this turn that, that includes us. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the head of the church, but, but that says something about us. That means that as the church, we are in him as his body. And, and then all these things that are true about us are true because of him coming before us. He's the, the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of, of the kingdom. The beginning of new creation for the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. His resurrection secures your resurrection. So that in everything, he would be preeminent. He's worthy of worship. He is the top. And in him, again, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And all of this is all of this is, is, is made manifest and, and, and imparted to us. We experience all of these things because at the end, verse 20, he's reconciling all things to himself by making peace by the blood of his cross. It's the cross of Christ from which he reigns. It's the cross of Christ uh, that secures all of our awareness of and enjoyment of the amazing person of Jesus. Now, I, re I read this as a, as a pastor and as a theologian, and I, get, I just get excited. I, I could probably preach this passage every Sunday. And you'd probably benefit from that, right? It's a great thing. And, and, and why do I get so excited? It's Again, it's because of hope. It's because of hope. Jesus and his victory on the cross, that, that securing of our redemption, that, that securing of our eternal place with him in heaven, that's our hope. It's, it's re being reminded of this regularly and knowing that because of Jesus and who He is and what He's done and who we are in Him, that when we look outside and we see the chaos of our lives and we experience the trials and the tribulations and, you know, sin still has its sway here, we're never derailed from, from the, 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 the great hope of knowing that all of that is going somewhere. Because Jesus is, He's done something about it. And it's finished work, and it's eternal work, and it's including us, right? There's hope for us in being reminded of that. And we need to be reminded of that regularly. Tim Mackey says, what you hope for shapes what you live for. Which is, I think, an important thing for us to remember. What you hope for shapes what you live for. Hope is essential for the Christian. And again, we need to remind it, be reminded of that often because you, you may have come in here this morning and hope was sort of the furthest thing from your mind. Right? Maybe, maybe earlier when I asked us all to pray and say out loud what you were thankful for, maybe for some of you, you were kind of drawn a blank. Like, I don't, I haven't really thought about being thankful for a whole lot of anything lately because it seems like a lot of the things around me lately are just hard. You know, the newspaper over the last few weeks, we've got hurricanes, we've got violence everywhere, we've got political tensions, we've got poverty and systemic injustice, we've got people dying every day all over the world. And it wouldn't matter what, what week we 
came and, and, I, and I tried to remind you of this from the pulpit, it, no matter what week it was, any time of the year, any year of our lives, you could look at the newspaper and you could find evil and calamity and trouble, right? And maybe you wonder then, how, how does this exalted and preeminent Jesus, how does he allow that to happen? Why, why is that all happening? If, if Jesus is all these things, why, why is there still so much garbage out there? Well, as I'm thinking about that, I go back to verse 16. Notice the three prepositions. Again, for by Him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. By Him, through Him, and for Him. One of the first things that comes to my mind as I read that is an influential book by John Piper. Uh, I read it several years ago, but it really shaped my understanding of of the sovereignty of, of God, the preeminence of Christ, even in the midst of a crummy, messed up world. The book was called Spectacular Sins, and it goes uh, on and on at length about the sovereignty of God over evil and over calamity and, and the purposes of all of that for the glory of Jesus. For Him. For the glory of Jesus. And so what I want to share with you uh, about all of this is, is heavily influenced by that book. And, and on this this text, I think Colossians 1, was, was a big part of, of, of the book's uh, core. Think about this with me. Paul teaches us that Jesus Christ created everything that exists. All that is, he created. It was created through him. He was with God and he was God, right? John chapter 1. As God created all things through him and for him, everything that came into being, therefore, exists for Christ. Everything. Everything exists to display His greatness. And what that means is that there's nothing, nothing in the universe that exists for its own sake. Nothing. Everything is for Jesus' glory. From the bottom of the ocean to the top of the heavens, right? From the smallest molecule to the, the biggest mountain. Every single thing that you can contemplate, including... Hurricanes, earthquakes, and tornadoes, and evil genocidal dictators. Everything exists for the glory of Jesus, to make the glory of Christ more fully known. That's a big statement. might even be a troubling one, right? I get flowers and rainbows and happy families and those things existing for Jesus and making, but, but, uh, but hurricanes and dictators? It's a massive statement to say everything exists for him. But, but Paul, I think, has that, that tension in mind, that those difficult things to comprehend in mind because of all the things, the millions of things that he could have mentioned, that Christ made, 
and that exists for His glory, He chose to mention these in verse 16. Thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities. Even these were created through Him and for Him. Now what are these thrones and dominions and authorities? Paul knows that these include evil, supernatural powers. How do I know that? Because if you look over on the next page in chapter 2, verse 15, Paul celebrates Jesus' triumph on the cross. He says he disarmed the rulers and authorities. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So here you see rulers and authorities that he refers to in chapter 1 showing up again, and it's specifically what he defeated at the cross. And they turn up again in chapter 6. If you want to flip over there to verse 12, you can see it there. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities. Right? They are, Paul says, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. They are evil supernatural powers that aim to deceive and destroy you. The human race. And the glory of Christ. And yet here Paul says, no, they've been decisively defeated at the cross where Jesus disarmed them and made His people completely secure by faith in Christ. Does that mean they don't do harm in the world? No, they still do harm in the world. They still exist in the world. Not everybody believes in Christ, and even those who do can be affected by these spiritual realities, the darkness, the rulers and authorities sway. Jesus hasn't come back and fully destroyed them. But, but why? Why not? Why not yet? Why do they exist? Well, again, Colossians 1.16 gives a, a pretty decisive part of the answer. Not the whole answer, but the part we need to know, again, by Him, by Christ, by the Son of God, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. That's where they came from, by Him. They were created by Christ. And why do they exist? For Him. They exist for Christ. They exist to make His glories known. Does it say that He created them evil? No, it doesn't say that, right? In fact, the book of Jude speaks to that. It speaks of angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling and they rebelled against God. They are culpable for their evil. Paul knows that, but, but he also knows this. Jesus wasn't shocked by that. God wasn't thrown off the throne when all of a sudden a bunch of angels rebelled against Him and decided to, to leave and sin against Him when Satan became Satan. That, that didn't throw God off. He foresaw all of that. And in His wisdom, He created it and allowed it to go that way. Because everything is by Him and through Him and for Him. Kind of a massive thing again, right? And he created those that would rebel. He knew what he was doing. 
And according to Paul, that was for Christ and his glory. Now, why would Paul tell us that? Is it helpful to know that? Well, Paul certainly thinks so. Because again, of all the things that he could have said, all the things he could have talked about here, this is the one thing that he points out as an example of what was created by Christ and for Christ. Rulers and authorities and these dominions. Why does he think that's good for us to know? I think, I think N.T. Wright gives a good explanation uh, for that as, as anyone. He says this. He says, behind the mystery of evil, of sin, of calamity, there stands the loving wisdom of God. In making a world which he could appropriately enter, he made angels who were prone to fall. He allowed one of them, the chief of them, to roam about in the Garden of Eden as a serpent, where he made man and woman in his own image. And the creation of such beings entailed the possibility that they would rebel against him. Such rebellion, he continues, could not baffle or perplex him. It could not confound his purposes. It would evoke that quality above all others of which he had no lack, namely the generous love expressed on the cross. He came, therefore, to defeat sin in the territory it had made its own, that of Adam, of human flesh and blood, Reconciliation effected through the death of the Son reveals most clearly the love of the Father. What he's saying there, he's saying, look, if you want to see love, you want to see the measure and the greatness and the glory of God's love, it's one thing to see it up against the background of a Garden of Eden where everything is peachy. It's another thing to see it up against the background of a broken, fallen world where everybody's rebellious and the grace of God says, I'll love you anyway. Romans 5, Paul also writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. It's, it's that revelation. It's that knowledge. This is, this is what makes Christ so amazing, Paul's saying. It's, it's that everything exists for Him. Even all this difficult, sinful, messed up stuff. Even all this... The, the powers that oppress against his people regularly, all of that. Listen, church, at the end of the day, it exists for his glory because his love is so much more magnified in the midst of that and towards you and for you that you're experiencing in Christ an immeasurable outpouring of love and glory. And Paul says, that ought, that ought to bring forth the praises of heaven and the praises of the church, which he invites the Colossians to do in joining their voices. That's so why I think this is probably a, a song or a poem. 
Sing this with me. He is the, the, the image of the invisible God. He is. He is. He has done. This is who Jesus is. And in verse 18, and, and he's the head of you. You're the church. You're a part of him. You're his body. Praise God. Let me, let me just close with five quick summary statements for why God wants us to know the truth of Christ's sovereignty over the rulers and authorities. And again, remember, the, 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 whole, the whole point here is I'm, I'm, I'm leading us to thanksgiving, right? Why does God want us to know all this? Why should it stir our hearts up to hope? Firstly, this. It's because it's objectively true. This isn't just opinion or idea. Paul wants you to know the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. It's objectively true. And people perish for lack of truth, right? So he said, this is, this is the, this is the reality of who Christ is. That's number one. Know it. This is true. Number two, these truths make clear that Christ is the only one then worthy of your worship. He's the only one. He's the preeminent one. It is Jesus alone who is the maker and the sustainer and the redeemer. Therefore, don't look anywhere else, church. He's the one who's worthy. And, and in fact, there is a, in chapter two, there's this hint that, that the Colossians were kind of looking beyond. They were looking to angels and all kinds of other spiritual things. And, and Paul corrects them to that, says, no, no, no. They're created by Christ and for Christ. It's all about Christ. Don't worship anything else. Worship the one who made all things. Thirdly, Paul was concerned that in the pluralistic, intellectual atmosphere of Colossae, Christians might be captivated by high-sounding heresies. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That's again Colossians 2. Verse 8, with, with these great truths about Christ, and, and I'm starting off here for this letter, he is protecting us from philosophies and traditions that don't cherish the supremacy of Christ. If it's not about the supremacy of Christ, it's not worth dwelling on, he's saying. It's all about Jesus. Don't be captivated by anything else that would take you away from the glory of Christ. Fourthly, he wants to make crystal clear that when Christians who feel so small and vulnerable, and some of you might, might be feeling that way this morning, you, you feel so small and vulnerable, you're, you're again, you're, you're surrounded by sort of that, that ever-present uh, awareness of the, of the darkness, of the thrones and the dominions uh, and the authorities that exist to, to bring you down and to... And to, and to take your eyes off of Christ and make you feel overwhelmed. And Paul says, you know what? I want you to be crystal clear about this, Christians. Those authorities can't do anything apart from the sovereign Christ's permission. Because he's defeated them and they exist for him. And your faith, therefore, is invincible. It's invincible. He wants us to see and feel that our salvation in Christ is an unshakable salvation. 
When Christ died for sin and rose again, Colossians 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Have you put your trust in him? If you have, if, if you're a Christian this morning, this is what Paul says about you in Colossians 3. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. In other words, you are secure forever in Christ. All things serve His glory and our joy. So dwell on that this morning. Dwell on that continually, right? All things were created by Him and through Him and for Him. Even your worst supernatural enemies, in the, in the end, it, it, was, it was them, not Christ, it was them who were put to shame by the cross. In the end, everything and everyone serves to magnify the glory of Jesus and everything serves to increase our joy in Him. That's an exalted view of Jesus that Paul is giving us here this morning. He makes the invisible God visible. He fulfills the Father's reconciling purpose on the cross. He's the Father's agent in creation and redemption. He's the truly human being, the true image of God, the Lord of original and new creation, being in Himself the beginning of that new creation, the first to attain the state of perfection, which one day will be shared by all things in heaven and on earth. This is Jesus. And he's the one the Colossians have come to worship. And we're invited to do the same thing this morning. These are the things that we're to believe. These are the things that we're to apply to ourselves. And these are the things that we're to remember for our hope. We have so much to be thankful for in Christ. Father, thank you for your amazing love. I'm thankful that we get to be thankful. That just implies that you've given something to us. And, and, and Lord, you've given to us more than something. You've given to us everything. So Lord, I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters this morning. As, as we leave this place and as we're, we're stepping into a new week, we're stepping back into the same old, same old maybe. Just that you would remind us regularly, Lord, that every good thing that we experience is because of you, that it exists for you, and we ought to thank you for it. And also remind us that every difficult thing, every bad thing that we might experience, that you're sovereign over it, that even our trials exist, Lord, for our joy because you use them and you're, you're in control over all of that, that none of it can, can, can rob us of our position in Christ as secure, redeemed sons and daughters. So even in the midst of the difficulty, Lord, help us to be thankful for what we have, which is, again, everything. Jesus, thank you for who you are. May we exist as well, Lord, for your praise and for your glory as your people. We pray this in your great, unrivaled name. Amen.